everybody. This is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. And I want to thank you for joining me. You can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. And this podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. And this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance abuse. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting fhehealth.com. And folks, I have with me today Sean McMillan, and Sean comes uh, to me by way of Hillary Phelps. You know, once again, Hillary has pointed a lot of folks my way uh, to share their experience and, you know, experience strength and hope. And Sean is going to be doing with, with that today. And I am told that Sean has a powerful story. And I'll be honest with you, I've not heard his story yet. So we're bringing Sean on without me really knowing what his story is, other than the fact that um, he has had uh, an experience like a lot of us have had, and that's multiple inpatient treatments. In fact, uh, I believe it's about five inpatient treatments and probably nine or 10 detoxes. But you know what? I'm going to tell you something that shows resilience. It shows that you never give up. It shows that you keep coming back and keep coming back and keep trying. And then maybe, just maybe, you'll have success with this because it's worth it. Your life is on the line with this. And just knowing that little bit about him, I'm interested in hearing the story because this believe it or not, is something that we hear quite a bit in the addiction field is that people going through multiple inpatient treatments, and that's okay. That's okay. The important thing is that you keep trying until you you get to the point to where you can have continuous sobriety. And so Sean is going to have a powerful story. I know it. And Sean, with that, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's, uh, it's definitely an honor to be here and to share my story. Uh, just because I think back to, to when I first came around is, you know, for me, it was my, my dirty little secret and I didn't want anybody to know and I hid it. And eventually I started hanging around with different people and learned to recover out loud and be open and honest about it. And it's, uh, it's turned into an amazing experience just because it, it's helped so many other people who have reached out to me. And it's it's led to currently I work for Heron Project, a nonprofit that was started by NBA player Chris Heron that uh, helps people with treatment, with treatment navigation, uh, recovery scholarships, uh, treatment scholarships, sober living scholarships, provides support to the families. I think there's 25 family support groups now that are all led by licensed clinicians and all of that was possible because, you know, I decided to be open about my story because there's there's a lot of us that are out there hiding that could be helping other people. Um, but, yes, I, I met Hillary through Charlie Engel and, I've, you know, I've known Charlie since uh, I want to say 2016. And we're all together at the Penguin at Ashley Treatment. Um, July 23rd and 24th for Charlie's 30th. Uh, your celebration of recovery and uh, but you know my story you know it's it's like a lot of others and different uh, you know kind of you know I, I grew up you know, I would say a normal childhood for the most part I you know both both my parents you know they're they're still married you know 55 56 years still live in the same house my dad was a local policeman and Vietnam vet. My mom originally was an educator, then had moved on to work for the county. But, you know, you know the childhood was pretty – I always had what I needed, and uh, they always provided. But, you know, at some point – along the way, you know, I, I kind of – even growing up, I had kind of this uh, – warrior ethos self-sufficient tough guy aggressive um we don't talk about feelings in this family uh big boys don't cry if you want something to cry about i'll give you something to cry about so i, I never really understood how to talk about feelings or express them other than anger 
And I, I can say I was probably a, I was a pretty defiant child as well. Uh, but, you know, but I, I guess, you know, somewhere along high school is where I figured out that I did not, I, I didn't feel like I belonged. I just felt different. It, uh, you know, I wasn't invited to parties because my dad was one of the local police and he knew where the parties were before we did anytime went somewhere my friends went somewhere or i went with them every cop in town knew what car we were driving so i I can say i really didn't drink that much in high school and then but i still didn't feel like i i belonged anywhere and you know looking back it's like wow it's it's almost sad that I, i felt like i needed to drink to fit in why couldn't I just be myself and uh, to feel comfortable in my own skin? Um, so I, I went to the local college. I went to Lock Haven University here in Pennsylvania. Uh, so I commuted to there. I, I still didn't. I didn't really drink a whole lot. I didn't drink that much in college either because, you know, I was living at home and I wanted to do well in school. And I was a, I was a perfectionist in school. I I was always very driven in school because, again, that was something that my father and my mom, too, both parents wanted us to do well, but we was just pushed to do really well. And I always kind of thought, well, I'm, I'm doing really well, but sometimes I felt it wasn't enough. So how can I even do better? And I just I think that was kind of the start of being a perfectionist. And, and honestly, when I got to school, I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. Uh, you know, I think while I was there, I changed my major five times. I bounced from major to major to major, trying to figure out what fit for me. And I still had no idea. Um, but Lockhaven had the Army ROTC program and I started exploring it. The Army wasn't something that was even on my mind when I left high school and but i had neighbor my neighbors growing up both had gone through the rotc program there so i thought well you know i like being active i like being outdoors i like shooting yeah let's explore this and then uh, so that's i ended up going into rotc and getting a scholarship and going into the pennsylvania army national guard and so I knew that I had a job when I left college. So, and then I got commissioned as a second lieutenant and I left for Fort Sam Houston, Texas, uh, two days after I graduated. So for me, I was all of a sudden this kid who basically grew up in a town with about 10 stoplights to I was in San Antonio and had a fat paycheck. And that began the uh, the escalation of and progression of my drinking career because we were basically overgrown college students who had fat paychecks in San Antonio, and we were you know had a lot of free time. So that's when the drinking began a little more. And then I, after that, I moved. I got married and moved to Fort Drum, New York, which is uh, about 70 miles north of Syracuse. You might as well say Canada. You know, I was in the 10th Mountain Division up there. And I was, uh, and I had moved over. I had switched jobs and became an infantry officer. So I went to ranger school and all the appropriate schools um, to be an infantry officer. And the alcohol was very much a part of the military culture is that i remember oh yeah it was my experience too (laughs) definitely any function had alcohol that's when i you know learned you know i had known about using a bathtub as a cooler but it never occurred to me using a washing machine as a cooler and i was like well it does hold water that's pretty interesting um you know but you know and but it, it still wasn't a problem i've still could drink normally um so my son was born uh, November 4th, 1998, uh, up in Watertown. 
and I deployed seven days later. That was uh, Saddam was acting up a little bit, and I did a no notice deployment. I was only gone for two weeks, but you know, still pretty rough leaving a newborn. Um, I deployed to Bosnia for four months. And then I came back and I went to Fort Benning, Georgia, for the infantry captain's career course. My drinking escalated even more there because then you had a bunch of captains living in the same neighborhood. And again, a lot of free time and part of the culture. And, you know, but it's still I wasn't it wasn't a problem. It was escalating, but wasn't a problem. So from. From Fort Benning, uh, my wife and I and my son moved to Alaska. We went to Fort Richardson, Alaska. Uh, to, to Well, then it was the only airborne battalion in Alaska. So I was in the first of the 501st. And alcohol was really part of the culture up there. Um, it was like basically in every refrigerator around. So when the flag went down, we were drinking. And, you know, that's when it, I, that's when it started becoming a problem because then I was a company, I became a company commander and, uh, it was that work hard, play harder mentality came in. And, you know, I only lived half a mile from my office and there were nights that I slept on my couch because I drank too much after work to drive home. And that's when it, it really started to escalate. And, uh, but, you know, my wife said a few, you know, things here and there, but, you know, I fit in with everybody else because I was drinking as much as everybody else. Um, then September 11th happened and, you know, the world kind of turned upside down from there. I, I gave up command about six weeks after 9-11 and I was pretty disappointed because the unit that I was in command of the men I worked for deployed to Afghanistan with a different company commander. My family and I moved down to Fort Polk, Louisiana. You can see the army had a sense of humor with the temperature changes with me, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold. (laughs) Um, But then we, I, we trained units to go to Iraq or Afghanistan and then eventually Iraq Louisiana was where my where my drinking escalated again. I had a lot of free time because if we weren't training units, we were home and sometimes you know working until nine ten o'clock, and it seemed like everybody in the neighborhood was having a little cul-de-sac party and drinking, wondering who had what in their refrigerator. And I want to say April April two thousand five was my first deployment to Afghanistan. Spent two months there, about two months there, attached to the 1st Ranger Battalion. As a matter of fact, I got there uh, about three or four days after Pat Tillman got killed. So things were a little tense. So I spent some time on the Pakistani border, and and I came home. And uh, my drinking escalated a little bit. And, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't talk about anything that happened in Afghanistan. So, February 2006 was my second deployment to Afghanistan, and I kind of bounced around from Bagram to uh, Kandahar, and I spent a little bit of time in Pakistan working with the Pakistani military. And you know, but when I—that's one thing. When I was deployed, there was always general order number one: no alcohol. I, you know, I had no problem with that. I did not drink when I was in Afghanistan, none whatsoever, because uh, it's it's life or death over there. So that was my set, and then I actually redeployed to the United States. Uh, I want to say the end of August, two thousand six, and to switch jobs. And exactly 90 days later, I found myself back in Afghanistan again as a task force operations officer. Um, We worked uh, almost uh, around the Ghazni area and we had little fire bases spread around. And that was uh, that was kind of 
that was definitely the deployment that really affected me of different events and different things that I carried with me for a long time. And when I came back, that's when my, my drinking really took off. You know, that's when I started, you know, breaking every rule that I ever had. I broke every rule my wife had, <laughs> you know, only two beers at this event, you know, no drinking during the week. No, And eventually I, I started drinking in the morning and then I was drinking all day. Um, I quit. I quit drinking beer because I was bloated and had to pee too much and I couldn't hide it at work. I was, you know, I started drinking vodka and mixing it in with soda so I could drink all day, but I was still functioning. I was still working. Um, I was doing well at my job and that worked until it didn't work. It just kept escalating. You know, my son was buying water bottles that weren't really water. I was starting fights with my wife so I could get away and go do what I wanted to do. I just wanted to, you know, I had back problems. My wife was on my back. The job was on my back. Everybody was on my back about my drinking. And it just, it was wreaking havoc. You know, my family from the outside would probably look like the ideal family at that time. We had the biggest house on the cul-de-sac. We had the two nice cars in the driveway. We had the two dogs and a cat. We had wonderful son but on the inside it was just chaos and just hell it was always screaming and fighting about how much i was drinking um you know i just I, it was just constant you know that fear of where did i hide stuff or waking up trying to remember where i hid stuff the planning it took to all my my efforts switched from work and family to my my true love became vodka and everything else played second fiddle and that started leading you know i moved out for a little while which really wasn't helpful because then i got to live alone and nobody was keeping an eye on me um so but I, you know some I knew something. I mean, my entire a, a lot of my army career, I'll go, you know, was the feeling side. You know, I always struggled with uh, self confidence, self esteem. I always the imposter syndrome was always there. I may be able to portray that I was confident, but on the inside, I was basically this scared kid. Unless it came to leading in combat, then I, you know, even there, you know that was something I felt I could do in confidence, but I couldn't really real life. Every time I came home from Afghanistan, I wanted to go back. I felt at home there. I was trained to do that. I wasn't trained to necessarily be a husband or a father. There was no, no manual on that. Um, we didn't publish lessons learned and talk, you know, SOPs and tactics, techniques and procedures. Um, and I just didn't know how to handle real life. And, you know, things that happened in Afghanistan really shook my self-confidence. I was carrying a lot of guilt around, a lot of anger around. And I always, I always lied on every post-deployment health survey because I didn't want to have to talk to the shrink. I just wanted to get out of there and go on leave. So um, it just, everything, my mental health just started to unravel. As my mental health unraveled, I just tried to... Um, put it back together or bury it with more booze and it just escalated 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 and alcohol took me some pretty dark places my wife and son eventually came back to pennsylvania and i decided i didn't want to live anymore and i can remember i i distinctly remember packing up all my stuff everything i owned and putting it into one room so they didn't have to worry about it and sitting out on a porch swing with a rifle in my mouth was going to do it until i looked inside and i saw my dogs sitting inside the house i was like i can't i can't do this to the dogs right now but i eventually i just i i don't even remember how much tylenol i took because I figured, well, that'll give everybody enough time to get here back before the dogs get here. But for some reason, 
you know, after a day or so, I and you know, I washed it down with every drop of booze that I had. And I don't know what made me do it, but I finally I went to the hospital, and but um, my liver was pretty much shot at that point. I was a jaundiced, bright yellow color. Um, family flew down. I ended up getting sent to a hospital in New Orleans. Uh, I was on dialysis and but they weren't sure I was going to make it and the doctors pretty much told me they were not going to give me a liver because of my drinking and you know because their experience with alcoholics they were not going to give me a liver because I was just going to fry the next one and it was uh pretty trying times um so eventually they decided that hey we'll we'll give you a liver if you do you know, X, Y, and Z. I said, okay. So I was about 24 hours away from them, you know, pulling the trigger on a liver transplant when everything turned around for me and I didn't need one. Um, but I still, I ended up spending I don't know, five, six weeks in the hospital. And I can remember the doctor saying, if you drink again, you're going to die. They beat that into my head. So, Okay. And the insanity of it is I probably waited about six weeks and I decided to to test their theory and I didn't die. So I, I was back off to the races again. And, uh, I ended up then that led to my, my first rehab. I went out to Point Loba Naval base in San Diego, beautiful place, 28 day stay. But I was a smart guy. I was really smart. You know, I knew all the buzzwords. You know, I probably walked out of rehab as the honor graduate. I looked like a champ because I, I knew knew everything to say. Two days later, I was drunk again. And I was off and running again. Uh, so eventually I did leave the Army. Fortunately, my career was intact enough and I did enough. Um, that I still left with an honorable discharge and I moved back to Pennsylvania and started teaching ROTC at Penn State Berks, Lehigh and Kutztown University. And, but I was a geographic bachelor. So my drinking escalated and I ended up, you know, my mental health continued to get worse and I just wanted to die. I was having, you know, flashbacks, you know, I'd be driving to work. 90 miles an hour and not even realize it, you know, just to avoid any vehicle. So, um, I, I ended up in a five month span, um, with five DUIs. Um, some of them were only a week apart. I don't even remember most of them. I'd wake up the next day with, uh, a towing company card on my counter and a police officer's card on my counter and don't even remember any of it. Sometimes I'd wake up in a hospital, and woke up in a drunk tank in Berks County a couple of times. And a lot of times I don't remember it. I mean, my BACs were higher than my college GPAs for the most part. Um, and, you know, my tolerance had gotten so high, even at a 0.285, the cop said, had you not blown a 0.285, I'd have never known you were drinking. Cause you're standing here talking to me normal. Um, so the, I ended up spending 11 months in the Berks County prison. Um, but the judge, the judge caught me my first break. That was, you know, again, God doing for something for me that I couldn't do for myself. He said, you don't belong in jail. Um, so I actually ended up, he released me to go to the Coatesville VA outside of Philadelphia. And I spent two weeks in the substance abuse treatment unit and then three months in the inpatient PTSD, PTSD unit, which was very helpful and started getting my life back on track. But one thing I didn't do when I got back home, I did re-enroll in college. I went back for a degree in health science is I never went to AA. I was still going to do it on my own. So instead of being a drunk asshole, I was an asshole who wanted to drink all the time, which was even worse. Uh, I remember my, my wife was telling me, Dude, I just wish you would drink. You were nicer then. 
um, at least he left us alone. <clears throat> but we we eventually got divorced. But in an, another moment that my higher power stepped in is my my academic advisor was actually a guy, a gentleman in recovery who had been involved. He had killed somebody in a fatal DUI accident when he was in college. And he was always in my corner. And uh, a couple, two years later, I picked back up again after being dry for two years. And I can remember the look of disappointment on his face because I, you know, I didn't want to disappoint him. I had already embarrassed my family who was already respected, you know, retired law enforcement and county employees. And I remember disappointing him. And I remember him telling me I was just too damn smart, too damn smart to get it. This is a simple program, Sean. You're too damn smart. So I went to treatment again. That was, yeah. I And I kind of held on and I dropped out of school for a little bit. And that was only a 10 day program out at the Pittsburgh VA. And, you know, I came back. Did I do AA again or any other type of recovery? Absolutely not. I was still convinced that I could do it on my own. If I read some books, watch some YouTube videos, you know, problem solved. Nope, didn't do that. That led to yet another relapse. And um, this is another one of those moments. I distinctly remember it, May 30th, 2012. I was in a small group communications class for school, and um, I was in there with, uh, you know, our small group had, I was in there with two younger women, and the professor walked around with a hat with random topics in it and said, you guys are going to present on this. And one of the girls picked the topic out of the hat, and I was sitting there six sheets to the wind already. It was like nine o'clock in the morning. I, you know, I, don't, I didn't know what a hangover was at any point because I just stayed drunk all the time. So girl picks the topic out of the hat and she reads the topic and the topic is should alcohol be illegal? I packed up my stuff and the professor looked at me and said, Sean, where are you going? I said, I'm going to treatment. And wow. I went to treatment. I, I was in Bowling Green outside Philadelphia by midnight that night. And, uh, When I came back from treatment that time, I actually listened. I, I walked into a meeting and said, my name's Sean. I'm an alcoholic. I just got out of treatment, and I need a sponsor. And I walked out of there with a sponsor, and I started working the steps. And my life just improved greatly. Um, you know, it, it's amazing the people you meet in there. Um, I enjoy my first sponsor was an amazing man. You know, I, you know, not to, but I ended up, I had, at that point I had four, I had two bachelor's degrees and two master's degrees. I was always very good at academics, was always very driven academically. My, my first sponsor only finished fifth grade, but he, he taught me how to live life on life's terms. He taught me how to be a good man. He taught me how to be a decent human being and help me work through my issues greatly. Um, so um, I had found running at that point because within a year of being out of the army, I was 240 pounds and knew I had to do something different. So I found the running running community and the recovery community about the same time. You know, David Clark, who has passed away, Charlie, and especially Heron Project or Team Heron Project and started meeting the most amazing people and making a lot of changes in my life, just overall wellness, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, spiritually. And it was it was wonderful. Uh, I had moved on. Um, I had used my experience then to become uh get my master's in clinical mental health counseling and was a therapist and things were going pretty well. And, but slowly my life, I, I started working the steps backwards. I started unplugging from the program. 
being able to rationalize that um, me helping other people was my recovery. And I very subtly, my, my mental health started declining. The depression was creeping back in. The anxiety was there. I was having more and more nightmares, but I didn't tell anybody because I had this feeling of this, this thought that, man, Sean, you got seven years sober. You should not be feeling this way. This, you, you should be feeling good. You got seven years sober. You shouldn't be plagued by these problems. And I kind of waited, I, I waited too long to finally start reaching out for help. My, you know, my second sponsor, he, he saw me backsliding because, you know, instead of calling him, he was calling me. And um, my second marriage was on the rocks. I, you know, wasn't performing well at work. I just was becoming miserable again. I was just numb. I was depressed. Like I said, it just, it unraveled. So for some reason that gave me the, the bright idea to start drinking again. And that made me feel again. Ironically, I used to drink to be numb. Now I, this time I picked up to not be numb, went on a pretty good bender, ended up with another DUI, which ended up being a felony this time for me. And, uh, so I went to treatment again. I went to Karen and I completed the 30 days at Karen. I had lost my job. Um, I was in the process of getting my VA disability upgraded and I came back from Karen and I, I, probably a month later I started again and I decided that I really didn't want to live that I you know, I was still struck. I was trying to get in back into the Coatesville PTSD program, but sometimes the bureaucratic red tape in the VA is pretty challenging. And that time I did an, a short stint in another psychiatric hospital because I was having panic attacks and just, I just, the suicidal ideations were just overwhelming. But eventually I did try. I had another attempt. I got, you know, that was another spot where alcohol took me to a very dark place. Um, and I was, I was saved. And I remember I was pissed. I was pissed off that somebody saved my life. I was just irate that you foiled my plan, you know? And, uh, but I, I eventually went back to the Coatesville PTSD program. And, uh, but it was only there a month. Um, that, so that would have been March 1st, 2020. So that was, that was when the pandemic was starting to creep in. And, uh, so everything was kind of shutting down and I was contemplating coming home because all the programming was stopped and, and I maintained contact with my sponsor while I was there. And I want to say it was March, a, I want to say 17th or 18th. I got uh, a text from my dad one morning that said, Hey, you need to call me as soon as you can. It's about Thomas, who my son, he was 21 and he was living out in Washington, PA living his dream of flying Lear jets for a private company. And they said, Hey, Thomas is missing. And when I, when I talked to my dad, my heart sank because, you know, 21 year old and definitely my son did not go anywhere without a cell phone. Um, and I just actually texted him. We were talking the day before because he asked, he had, I remember specifically he had asked how I was doing. He was concerned about me and, uh, but he was missing and my gut said something is really wrong. I didn't know what, and that's that total feeling of powerlessness and helplessness I felt. So if there's one, another God doing for me, what I couldn't do for myself, no better place to be when you're, find out your son's missing is to be surrounded by about 10 therapists and 
you know, 30 of the most supportive veterans you could ever have. Um, so I, I ended up coming home and they, they searched for my son. They couldn't find him. March 20th at 846, I, I got the phone call. My son had died by suicide. Oh, I'm so sorry. He had shot himself, and uh, it was a <clears throat> total surprise to me and his mom. Um, and what I'll say is the people that were there for me that when that happened were the recovery community. I mean, my first phone call was my parents, first to my parents, second one was to my brother, third one was my sponsor yeah and my phone blew up with people from aa and from heron project people in recovery most supportive people i've ever met um which came at a good time because i had just you know back in 30 days sober again um so i was dealing with that and uh, well, actually, exactly a month after that, I got eventually got sentenced for my DUI that I got the year before. So I ended up on house arrest for a year. Um, I was able to stay out of jail and come into veterans treatment court, which, again, that was a wonderful opportunity. They didn't have to let me do that. But even though that year was the one of the crappiest years of my life, it was also... It, the the year that presented me with the year was I was able to obtain the most growth. I'm sure the dog and I both had to stay in the yard. Um, both had dollars on, just hers was around, around her neck. Um, but it it allowed me to to focus on my own healing and my own recovery and just dig my heels in back into my recovery work, recovery meetings. Granted, I had to do them by Zoom, but the reality, I, I live in a rural area. I got to attend more meetings by Zoom. I attended more meetings in Zoom in a pandemic than I did <laughs> in person in probably seven years. Um, a lot more back through the steps with my sponsor. Figured out that, you know, where, where I wanted to go in my life. And by that time, um, I had become 100% acted through the VA, which at first it was like, all right, this is what I've been fighting for. I'm service connected for 100%. I, you know, I, won't, I don't have to work. I have proven that I can't work with people, that I can hold stuff together for a little while, and that it unravels. And then the next thought was, my God, I'm worthless. I can't work. Because I had always been instilled in me was work ethic, responsibility. All those things, all those values that I had that went away when I was drinking because I grew up with great morals and values, but, and put some booze in me and I had the morals of an alley cat, um, whether, you know, um, but, uh, but I dove back into my recovery. I dove back into therapy. I just, you know, I was very fortunate. The treatment court judge let me get out and run every day. Um, I still remember that conversation too. So what do you want to run like one day a week um, for like half hour? I'm like, like um, all seven days. Um, can we go two hours? And he looked at me and he goes, Oh, wait a minute. You're the guy that runs all the time. Cause uh, a couple of years before, ironically, I was, uh, I ran 24 hours in a treadmill to raise money for Heron project and for the veterans treatment court. So then I was known as that guy who did 24 hours on the treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> so when he said two hours a day, I'm like, yep. Um, you know, it just, uh, and that led to, you know, getting new employment at, uh, then I worked for Heron project. I got hired at Heron project as a staff member. I started my own, you know, something I finally, with the coaxing of some other people, because um, it was something I wanted to do, had gotten certified, was 
started my own running coach, uh, running coaching business. So, you know, like right now I've got 13 people I'm coaching from different distances, I've, you know, from, you know, 5k the brand and I kept coming back. Um, despite the guilt and shame that I just carried around, you know, for a lot of years, you know, why can't I figure this out? Why are other people figuring this out? Um, embarrassing my family, embarrassing myself, becoming disconnected from the world, um, disconnected from who I was. And, you know, it took me 48 years to finally feel comfortable in my own skin because I was always chasing something outside of myself. I did it with booze. I did it with running, became an obsession for a while. I can do it with Amazon, also known as the devil's shopping cart. I can do it with that. I can do it with relationships, anything to, to get out of myself. But I've learned to look inward and, you know, go from this selfish, self-centered SOB who didn't care who I hurt, who I steamrolled, whatever, to learning how to have empathy and compassion and be kind and be vulnerable. You know, I had the courage to, you know, jump out of airplanes, get shot at, repel out of helicopters, all that. But if you wanted me to talk about feelings, Mm-mm. I wasn't talking about feelings because honestly, the three hardest words I ever had to say in my life were, I need help. But now they're the three words that I'm most grateful that I ever said. It just that being that powerful. And that's even over the last since I, you know, come back into to recovery after my my last little run is when I ask when I need help I need for need help or I ask for it I don't give my standard answer of I'm fine I'm good I'll just say hey I'm doing shitty or I'm struggling or I pick up my iPhone that is not gorilla glued to to the dining room table and it's just been you know the promises do come true and I now have a life beyond my wildest dreams. Is it all rainbows and unicorns? Not at all. Is it perfect? No. But it's it's beautiful. It's ugly. It's amazing. It's challenging. It's frustrating. And it's beautiful and amazing. And I just have learned to live one day at a time and enjoy life and to be present and I've learned so much through recovery of, about how to enjoy life and have fun because I never imagined having fun without booze. Now, I've had more fun in sobriety than I've ever had fun in, before in my life, and I actually remember it, and I can remember where I parked. I don't have to walk out and look at my truck to see what new dents are on it. I don't have to see who, what police officer's card is on my counter. I can remember conversations. I can have meaningful relationships. It's just, you know, the blessings of sobriety have just been overwhelming. And I'm just, you know, I'm filled with gratitude every day. And I'm really filled with gratitude for people who did not give up on me when I gave up on myself. And, I, you know, it's just even a penguin, of, you know, I've met the most beautiful people and the most amazing humans and it's just um you know but that's just it you never quit you know keep fighting recovery is possible it is possible if we do the work can't just think about it i had to do the work i always wanted to find an easier way around it instead of doing the work you know just sit back and hope something changes. Well, hope is not a course of action. No. I had to do <laughs> Not at all. You know, it's just, it's kind of like, you know, going to the gym. I can't just sit there on a, on a bench and hope that the weights lift themselves. I can't just lace up my running shoes and hope they take me somewhere. But, you know, but when I, when I started doing the work, so many magical things happened magical people entered my life and um i just feel so blessed if you ever would have told me that 
you know, I've always wanted to belong. But the, the club I didn't want to belong to was the rooms. But now it's the club that I want to belong to. I, you know, my best friends are in recovery. My, you know, they, they are my family. And it's just, it's, it's amazing how perspective on outlook on life changed just because of people in recovery doing the work, doing the steps and putting the plug in the jug of, I don't need that. And it's just, uh, it's been one hell of a journey and people ask me all the time, would you do things differently? Would you take this back? And I'm like, no, because all those things, all those things, whether they're good or bad, have made me who I am today. Apparently, I needed to learn those lessons. Granted, I'm a slow learner. I apparently love to learn through pain. It's a hell of an educator. But all of those things have made me who I am today. And it's just, uh, it's been amazing. But uh, but thanks, Mike. I appreciate you letting me share that. Wow. What a powerful story. And, you know, pain certainly is a motivator. It, it's one of the major motivators. It doesn't have to be. And, you know, just to address one thing that you just mentioned right there, and that is, is that people ask you, if you had it to do over again, would you change anything? No, uh, I, I, I agree with you, even in my own story. You know, we had to go through what we had to go through in order to get to where we are. And then we also tell people that that's kind of a futile thought, too, because you can't change it. You know, there's no, uh, you know, you're, you're an army guy, you know, in, you know, whatever the situation is, whatever the combat situation is that you're in, that we're here. It doesn't matter. You know, like our best laid plans, right? And I'm sure you guys would do operations orders and you would do planning for emissions, but you you know as well as I do that the one way that that mission is not going to go down is the way that you did it in the op orders. As soon as, you know, the engagement begins, then that that's done. We're going in different directions because there's things that happen that we didn't plan. And all we can do is deal with what's in front of us right now. It doesn't matter what was on paper. It doesn't matter what was on, uh, you know, our op order, what we briefed last night. It doesn't matter. We're dealing with the situation in front of us right now, and that's the way that it is. We, we can't change the past, and we and we really don't know what tomorrow holds. So we got to work on today. And it sounds like you're doing a lot of that, just focusing on what's right in front of you. Um, you know, you mentioned that you went to Ranger School, and uh, that what what a brutal brutal evolution that is. And you hear many 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 people, you know, talk about you know how do you, how do you get through Ranger School or budge training or you know even flight school. I went through Navy flight school, which trust me was no, it was different. It wasn't as physical as what you're going through, but it was challenging, very challenging in, in other ways. You, you got through it every day. Just focus on what what are they having me do right now. Focus on that right now. And only focus on that. Don't worry about tomorrow. Hey, did you hear next week they're going to have you do this and it's 10 times harder? I'm not worried about next week. I'm worried about right now. Um, that was. Do you think that that mentality was a big part of how you got through the challenges? Because you had very significant challenges and, and tragedy happen. I think, you know, when I was able to get through it successfully and less painfully, I staying present and just focused on one problem at a time or one issue at a time was much more beneficial because I could quickly go down a rabbit hole and doing the what if um, and overwhelm myself to the point where I just beat myself down. But I think if I can just focus on one thing, I think that's, you know, for me, it's just focus on what's in front of me. It goes back to how you eat an elephant one bite at a time. And because, I, like I said, I can quickly overwhelm myself. Um, but, you know, we, we like to think we're good at multitasking and all this other stuff, but we're much better when we're just doing one thing. And it's just that one thing at a time, one day at a time. It, to me, just like that takes away a lot of the challenges or the challenges there. Yes. But I think it just makes them a little more, uh, we can, we can conquer them a little easier that way. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the biggest takeaways in your story for anybody that's listening right now is do not, you talked about how your, your self-confidence and your self-esteem started uh, declining 
And of course, you were talking about that in the context of, hey, I'm, I'm in this combat environment and leading troops. That's my element. And that's where my confidence is. And then you would come back. But you can even push that a little bit further and just say, you know, as things happen and you keep relapsing um, or you get one DUI, then another DUI, one treatment uh, stay, then another treatment stay. And, and I know that's part of my story is my self-confidence and my ability to get well really started to erode. And I think that it's particularly difficult for people like you and I, where we, you know, we were military people and, you know, in our jobs, we do incredibly difficult things, you know, things that most people couldn't do some of the stuff that we did in the military. Uh, but yet this, this idea of just doing something like, don't put a drink in my mouth. Like I couldn't do that. You couldn't do it. And to somebody that's a very type A personality, and in that world where you're doing difficult things, it starts to eat away. It, it's your self-esteem and self-confidence. Like, what the hell is wrong with me? Why can't I do this? It seems like it's a simple concept, but I can't do it. And then you just get into this perpetuating cycle. And I guess, how would you encourage somebody or what thought process would you walk somebody through that came to you that's in the same boat and said, look, I'm not, because I actually had somebody recently uh, call me and say, like, Mike, this is so hard. This is so difficult. I don't know what to do. Um, I'm a loser. This, this individual I was talking to is like, you know, I'm a loser. I, there's something wrong with me. And, and of course you're not a loser well, and there isn't, think- you have the disease. That's what's wrong. But what would you say to yeah. somebody to get them out of that cycle? To have respect for the disease that there's, you know, that that's where I went wrong, I think, is I didn't respect the disease that we're sick. It's not a matter of self-will or confidence because I was able to do everything I wanted to do in my life, but I got my butt whipped by a bottle, a lot of bottles. But it's just to have the respect for it and treat it accordingly that we have to do the treatment if we wanted to go away. It's like anything else we have, you know, it's to do the hard work because anything else that we've wanted to do in life, at least that I've wanted to do in my life, I've done the work because it was important to me. And eventually staying sober was the utmost important to me because then everything else was possible. But it was I had to do the work. I couldn't just sit back. It's not like a headache where I could just sit back and wait for it to go away. That, you know, it's just it is that keep fighting. Don't give up. Do the work. And if you find something, you know. It's find what works for you, because, you know, okay, I got I got sober through the rooms but there are so many other different ways people can get sober if the rooms aren't working for you maybe go try dharma recovery if that's not working for you go try smart recovery if that isn't working for you go try celebrate recovery if that isn't working for you maybe try an addictions counselor if that isn't working for you maybe just try a sober buddy um it's just use all available options and resources and yeah it's just acknowledge it's gonna be hard but damn is it worth it 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 is and anything that you do that's worthwhile in your life is going to be difficult and it really starts with you wanting to want to get well and putting your sobriety ahead of everything else. Now, what would you say to someone, because I hear this a lot, Mike, I know you want me to go to meetings. Mike, I know you want me to go to treatment, but I'm going to have to spend time away from my family. And I, you know what? I, I need to spend time with my family. That's, that's, that's important to me. And uh, so I can't, I can't do all these things that you want me to do because that's going to take time away from them. What would you say to somebody that comes at you with that? I just use even my own experience is if you keep doing what you're going to, if you keep doing what you're doing, you're not going to have a family to spend any time with. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have a job to come back to. There's a strong possibility that you're not going to have that stuff in the big scheme of things, 30 days away from your family. 
is not a big deal, but your family needs you well, they need you healthy, and they need you here sober. Yeah, it's true. And, and to put it in perspective, you know, being you being a military guy, me being a Navy guy, um, you know, 30 days, folks, was a training evolution in the Navy. <laughs> that was not even that was not even a deployment. That was just training. <laughs> uh-huh. And I always got over that. People said 30 days away from home. I'm like, yeah, that was like we did that all the time. It's not a big deal, but our drinking takes us away permanently. And, um, you know, and when it comes to going to a meetings, if, you know, matter whatever your uh, group is, whether it's AA, NA, Dharma, Celebrate Recovery, Smart Recovery, you're talking an hour away. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, most of us were drinking four or five hours a day uh, and didn't, didn't blink an eye at that. Didn't blink yeah, an eye. Exactly. But yet now AA's uh, an hour and you're not having to nurse a hangover or prepare for it. So, uh, and I don't know, it seems like a pretty good trade-off, don't you? Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because I was, you know, from pretty much everything, I was physically present, but I was psychologically not there. And like I said, man, I was, I was pretty much drinking 24 hours a day, um, other than when I was passed out. So to give up an hour a day, yeah. Seems like a pretty good trade-off, man. I spend money that I'm spending on booze. I spend a buck a night for <laughs> the coffee fund, and I get some of the best therapy I ever got in the world. Mm-hmm. So an hour, hour away versus the 24 I was wreaking havoc at home. Yeah. Hey, by the way, those of you that are listening, a uh, little exercise that somebody had me do is – Take the average amount of alcohol or drugs, whatever it is that you're doing, and add that up per day. Let's just say $25 a day. And most of us are probably, we're drinking more than that in one day. But just for, for, for um, you know, for this experiment, you know, just do $25 a day. Add that up seven days a week, 365 days, and, and do that for however long you've been drinking. Add up that money. I think it's going to shock you how much money that is that you're, you're just throwing away. It's a lot of money, so life just gets better, and your and your health. It sounds like your your health is much much better. You're running, you're you're doing these things. You're a running coach now, and uh, so take us a little bit before we close out. Uh, tell us what you're doing now, and if there's any social media that if people want to reach out to you, how can they do that? And um, you know, and tell us a little bit more about the heroin 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 project and, and everything that you're doing there. Oh yeah, uh, so I like I said I'm a hundred percent service connected veteran and uh but but i do work part-time for the heron project that's h-e-r-r-e-n heron project which you can check out at heronproject.org with all the resources and stuff they have but i'm the right now i'm the community engagement court or community engagement coordinator yeah i gotta remember my duty title um but so i i I organize the, we'll start back in October, the online recovery groups. I work with our alumni and I am in charge of the ambassador program. Um, so a spinoff of Heron Project is Team Heron Project, which is people who are physically active, you know, whether it's triathlons, running, biking, um, that does a lot of fundraising because Heron Project is a nonprofit and operates off of strictly private donations and but you know they have charity bibs they run you know boston marathon new york city marathon dublin marathon berlin marathon london marathon coming up um all kinds of different uh events to help raise money and connect it's not just people in recovery it's family members it's family members who have lost somebody to overdose it's just an amazing community that has been built. Um, so I do a lot of stuff with them. Um, and so I, originally I got involved with them actually through Charlie um, and Pam Rickard, um, who is the director of act, active engagement for Heron Project. And so that helped me get my life back to being just well, of just physically mentally emotionally spiritually and especially socially because connection was something that was not big for me connection with other vets was 
was, but other people in recovery and just civilians, community members. So now I have a community and a, a connection with this wonderful community. Um, and so, but I am active. I try to be active on social media. Um, currently, you know, I'm, I'm training for a hundred K next month. I'm gonna, I got some things coming up, uh, probably doing a, a 50 miler next year with one of my newest running students, Hillary Phelps. Ah, yes. Hillary, Hillary wants to be the next Courtney DeWalter. So we're going to work on that. So gonna, you know, so I, I have that coming up, uh, do some fundraising for Heron project for that. And, uh, I want to do some things to, to other things. I'm going to do some more fundraising for Heron project and for, um, suicide prevention. And we have a memorial scholarship. My family has a memorial scholarship for my son that we want to help uh, somebody in the local community go to flight school because that mm. was my son's dream since he was two years old. So we want to provide that dream to somebody else. Um, but I can be found on Facebook, um, just Sean McMillan. And uh, on Instagram, it's sober underscore Sean underscore Macmillan. And I... I like to share my story and some inspiration just uh, as other people have provided me to lift me up and, you know, keep me moving and remind me that, you know, life is pretty darn good. Well, um, you, you're talking about Hillary Phelps and after she did the Penguin, which was a fundraiser for Ashley Addiction Treatment Center, um, she had sent me a text and she said, oh, I went and I bought a hydration pack. And I said, uh, wait a minute. If you're buying a hydration pack, that only means one thing. Are you doing an ultra marathon? And it was, yes, I am. And I thought, oh, if you're buying the hydration pack, you're pretty committed to it. So, <laughs> I mean, looking for her out on, on the circuit. Um, I, I did a little secret. I did. Uh, I've done a couple of 50 milers myself, not competitive yeah. like you guys. There's, there's nobody writing books about my, my, actually there's probably going to be some books written about why it's not a good idea for a middle-aged man to go out and do 50 mile runs. But uh, I'll, I'll probably write that book someday, but that is, <laughs> that is phenomenal. You got, you guys are you're shaming me into getting back into running. I think I'm going to have to do that. So that is phenomenal, phenomenal. I don't know. You might you might have another uh, you might have another client in your running business. Hey, we'd love to have you, Mike. We have a we have a great little family of people I coach, and some of them are in recovery, some of them aren't. Some of them are people local here in Pennsylvania, and you know, I, you know. Well, your 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 training plan for me would be I should get a discount because it's going to be easy. It'll just be you just text me and go, Mike. Did you did you run today? Did you, did you do did you did you leave the house today? See that that's all you would have to do with me. So maybe I can get a discount on that. But but in all fairness, Mike, I know you're a spin instructor, <laughs> and I thought I was in pretty good shape until. Uh, I want to say it was 2016. Yeah, 2016. I went to a spin class with a friend of mine out near Pittsburgh, and I was I was probably a little too confident, borderline cocky that I I just I you know I just ran the Grand Canyon rim to rim to rim. Oh I'm yeah, not gonna have a problem with this. That lady smoked my behind. <laughs> I couldn't walk for days. <laughs> it's tougher than people think. It really is. It's tougher than people think, but it's it's a good thing. And no, and health and recovery, and and we'll, we'll I'll tell you what, maybe we'll we'll do another podcast where we can come in and just talk about the um, aerobic, particularly aerobic exercise, and how that assists in recovery and helping to repair the damage to our bodies and our brain. Because uh, you know that's a whole discussion topic right there. So we should do that down the road. So I'd love to have you back on the show in the future Absolutely. and talk about that. 
love to. Yeah, and listen, um, I, I so appreciate you sharing your story. What a powerful story. But guys, it just shows that you can, it, re, the name of this podcast is Recovery is Possible. And you said that in, in your um, in your story. It is possible. You keep, It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many times you fall down. It doesn't matter how many times you fall down. What really matters is how many times you get back up. And, and Sean, your story is really on point with that message. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. Guys, and thanks again. And so, uh, you know, this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. And Sean is a veteran, um, really is somebody that can relate to the type of work that FHE Health does with veterans and in dealing with PTSD, suicide. We talked about that today. And according to SAMHSA, first responders and military are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. And FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and clear for duty. And so find out more on how to uh, get information on them at FHEHealth.com. That's FHEHealth.com. And so as I'd like to say, I don't represent any group, um, nor does Sean. You know, we talked about a lot of different groups here today. There's a lot of groups that are out there. And check them all out. You know, Sean made a very, very good point. That is, you know, you do what works for you, right? I, I have my particular 12-step program that I work, but I have dialed that into what works for me. That Sean is the same way. But you try any any group out there. But the best thing is to have somebody that you're working with. You know, trying to get into recovery on your own doesn't usually end well. And um, so, you know, I don't. But I don't represent anyone other than myself. Same with Sean. And our only purpose in giving this information is to help you with what has worked with us and encourage you to start your own program. So if I said anything that doesn't apply to you or you don't agree with, then just discard it. But try to take any information you can use for yourself and then try to use that to help others as well because that's what we do in recovery and that's what we're doing here on this podcast is to help ourselves along the way as we help to impart any knowledge that we've gained uh, to other people. And with that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. Let me know that I'm how I'm doing because I'd love to hear from you. Let us know if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about because we'd love to hear from you. You guys take care, and we'll see you next time. Sean, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike.